1: Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jolin, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm here with Dr. Sarah Wagner to discuss her new book, What Remains? Bringing America's Missing Home from the Vietnam War, published by Harvard University Press in 2019. In the book, Dr. Wagner tells the stories of America's missing service members and the families and communities that continue to search for them. The book won first prize for the 2020 Victor Turner Prize for ethnographic writing from the Society of Humanistic Anthropology. Dr. Wagner is professor of anthropology at the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences at George Washington University. She is the author of To Know Where He Lies, DNA Technology, and the Search for Srebrenica Missing, as well as Srebrenica in the Aftermath of Genocide. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me today to discuss your book.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: As I just mentioned, What Remains is not your first book. In To Know Where He Lies, your 2008 book about the aftermath of the Bosnian War, you study, among other themes, the politics of DNA technology in identifying human remains. This is a topic you revisit in what remains. Can you give our listeners an idea of how you came to study memory, science, and absence, and what connections might exist between your 2008 book and this one.
2: Well, I should begin by saying that my 2008 book um, is the book that came out of my doctoral dissertation research. And when I was um, thinking of my dissertation project, I was very much attuned to return as a process um, of social repair and reconstruction, meaning that displaced persons would return to pre-war homes and attempt to rebuild, you know, their families, their physical surroundings, their community. When I got into the fields, it was abundantly clear that my interlocutors had a different um, experience of return that they wanted to speak of. And that was the return of their loved ones remains. And so it was one of those instances where I sort of had to change horses midstream. And I can say that I wasn't well prepared. Theoretically, I had taken, um, you know, a minimal amount of, uh, say, science and technology studies or an anthropology of STS. So I really didn't know much about forensic science or forensic genetics or DNA testing. Um, It meant that I was learning on the fly Um, And in some ways, that was a good thing because it really confirmed that while I'm not, you know, uh, a dyed in the wool STS scholar, I'm fascinated by the social implications of technology such as uh, forensic genetics and how it becomes meaningful or when it is contested. By families of the missing themselves, you know, lay persons, if we can call them that, the you know who are often deemed the beneficiaries or the recipients of this knowledge. So that first book explored um, the process of um, yes, the recovery, like the location, recovery, exhumation. Of remains of the victims of the Srebrenica genocide, but it was also really about knowledge production and the way you know this this highly esoteric DNA matching report got translated into the social experience of memory, of imagination, of community rebuilding, including nation building and narratives of victimhood versus perpetration. So it was at, um, I spent about a decade researching and writing about that phenomenon so that the event and its aftermath and thinking through forensic science as this mechanism of social repair and the ways that it fell short of expectations um, that are pegged to it by the international community undertaking this process, principally at the time that is. And so when I was wrapping up that project, um, I began to think about where the expertise came from Um, meaning the forensic scientific expertise because Bosnia and Herzegovina and the identification of the Srebrenica missing really changed the way forensic genetics was used in um, the aftermath of violent conflict um, in identifying missing persons. It became sort of the engine driving the process rather than the sort of the tool of confirmation or or exclusion, you know, with a presumed identification. So All of that is to say, this whole system had emerged in Bosnia and Herzegovina that really centered um, DNA, forensic genetics. And I wanted to understand where that expertise had come from. And following that thread, it brought me back to the US. And what I mean by that is there were two forensic geneticists who helped to stand up um, the International Commission on Missing Persons Laboratory in Bosnia and Herzegovina and really helped structure that program. So in some ways, I was, you know, I was trying to do an STS move of following expertise, um, you know, these um, immutable mobiles that that are, you know, moving around, and 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 that brought me back to the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory. Um, the two individuals who had worked in Bosnia had had a hand in the identification of the Vietnam unknown soldier who had been buried. At Arlington National Cemetery, and I just was sort of blown away by not just you know the expertise, but also this realization that there was this, you know, this almost untouchable national icon that had gotten not only interrupted, but in some ways like emptied out, literally emptied out. And so I wanted to think about that, um, and that. You know, what started is just like pulling at one little thread became an entire project that consumed me for the next next decade. So and that it culminated in um, What Remains.
1: Thank you for that. After a vignette entitled Homecoming in What Remains, you introduce your readers to what you call the fundamental conundrum of the book. That is the scenario in which the remains of war dead go unrecovered and their fates unaccounted for, and the consequences of this absence. To help our listeners situate some of the vocabulary you and your interlocutors use in the book, I'd like you to please define some key terms for us, such as fullest possible accounting, a term that state actors will often use. And ethos of exceptional care. In, I'm so I'm curious. In what context did you first see these terms emerge in your fieldwork? And how should we understand them?
2: Great question. Um, so fullest possible accounting goes straight to the discourse so the lexicon of the state. Um, that is the, the U.S. military in its efforts to account for its missing service members, not just from the Vietnam War, which is the focus of what remains, but really from the, con- the major conflicts of the 20th century. That said, the phrase fullest possible accounting comes in response to the Vietnam missing in action, actually POWs, so a prisoner of war and missing in action categories Um, in both during and after that conflict in Southeast Asia. So I should note that the phrase itself wasn't originally of the state. It came out of the mission statement, sort of the creed of the National League of POW MIA families, which was at its inception and still to this day the most politically mobilized um, and effective, I would argue, of the family associations, sort of advocating for and pushing for accountability um, when it comes to the POW/MIA issue. And I have to acknowledge that that they've never really left off with the yoking of the two categories, the POW and MIA. Though you know, there's there there are no prisoners of war still in um, in Vietnam or Laos or Cambodia. And, and in Southeast Asia, but sort of rhetorically, they keep those two categories linked um, in their mission statement and still to a certain extent, their sort of ideological grounds by which they push the US government to continue its efforts to account for the, the, the missing, we'll say the missing in action. So that emerged, that language of fullest possible accounting emerged out of, um, an advocacy association organization, but it gets picked up by Richard Nixon. One is he's explaining um, the signing of the Paris Peace Accords in 1973, and also again in his address, his uh, State of the Union address in January of um, 1974. So he really doubles down on this phrase. And if you kind of pick it apart, I mean, it's, it's essentially a pledge by the state of this accounting, um, acknowledging that they'll do everything that is possible, and that everything and that is possible continues to change. But it is this sort of pledge that it's not going to be a you know a, a partial process. It's it's um, it's you know essentially doubling down on an obligation to the families, but most especially the service members.
1: Thank you for that. Yeah, um, and obviously you've orchestrated the helicopter in the background. It's very apropos. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It's, it's totally fine. So in the book's first chapter, Obligations of Care, you argue that the United States has come to define its duty to missing war dead through the acts of repatriation and individuated forensic care. This duty, you explain, is grounded in what you describe as a social contract between the state and and other actors such as the families of war dead, as you just mentioned. Here, I'm gonna quote you at length, quote, "'The symbolic power of war dead derives from an implied social contract between the U.S. government and surviving relatives, the military, veterans and current servicemen and women, and the general public. A military death is cast as the ultimate sacrifice an individual can make on behalf of his or her country and the social contract between the state and its subject derives from the promise to care for the individual killed in battle, unquote. In your research on the recovery of missing war dead, you observe that the terms or the nature of this social contract has changed with time. Can you sketch broadly how this social contract has changed during the last century and where in your research you witnessed this change?
2: Yes, so um, I promise that my explanation will get us to the other key term that you had asked about before, which is the ethos of exceptional care. Um, the argument that I make, and I'm standing on the shoulders of military historians of um, works such as Thomas LaCour's The Work of the Dead, or uh, Drew Gilpin Faust's This um, Republic of Suffering, is an analysis of a practice that is um, in some ways cast as uniquely American, Mm -hmm. but over the course of the 20th century, and especially in the the latter part of the 20th century, early 21st century, begins to get exported, right? So it's something that the United States um, is modeling and and other countries are picking up on it. And that is this, uh, as I was saying, this pledge of fullest possible coming, this insistence that remains of war dead have to come home, that's that notion of repatriation. Drew Gilpin Faust, in her analysis of the Civil War, you know, charts for us these various practices, you know, from naming to embalming that develops in the aftermath of the war. And key to it is the idea that, especially, you know, the northern soldiers need to be brought back home. It's you know? so the idea of repatriation, whether within the United States territory or in the subsequent wars of the 20th century, that sensibility that it is not okay for remains to lie where they, you know, for individuals lost in battle to lie where they, they died, right? That those remains need to come back. And you see that emerge um, in a sort of, a, a, not a startling, but a pretty significant statistic in the wake of World War I. So the U.S. government um, essentially sets the question before families. And seventy percent of families say we want them to come home. Now, yeah? at that same time, and, and scholars like Lacour or James or Jay Winter um, write about the sort of commemorative practices in the wake of World War One. It's a democratizing era of the dead. There is an emphasis on what Lacour calls a necronominalism—that there's this. We're in this era of naming. We're in this era of individuated memories, um, and. The American practice is, you know, apace with that. So we have this enormous effort to bring remains home. That sensibility extends into World War II. Once again, the vast majority of families wanted remains to be returned. By the Korean War, we get a shift in the operational practice of that sensibility of repatriation of, of bringing them home, and that is um, a, a sort of emphasis on on the alacrity, on the speed that it needs to be happening concurrently with the battles being waged. So this is to say, rather than waiting until, you know, the treaties are signed and temporary burials are dug up, there would be an effort to bring remains home, even as the war continues to wage. Um, Kurt Peeler writes about this. He writes about both that practice of concurrent return, but also when we get to the Vietnam War, that it's sort of mixed up as well with the sense of um, alienation, like what is, what is foreign soil, right? And what are the dangers of foreign soil? Is it, you know, why is it that the US military was, and the and US society was less comfortable with remains being buried um, or left in Asia than they were with the theaters of Europe, right? Like if you were to travel right now, to in France, you will, you know, be able to go to American cemeteries from World War One and World War Two, right? Meaning that the, you know, we were comfortable as a society; we were more comfortable with leaving our are dead, are fallen in those, those battlefields, those cemeteries than they were in Asia. Yes, go ahead. And
1: and I have been to some of those cemeteries and the politics around the, the land is, is quite interesting, but. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, There's a military historian, well, historian, um, Sam Edwards, who talks about um, thinking of war dead as these, these, these these conscripts into a kind of um, military uh, post-war diplomacy, right? So they're they're still doing work. They're still serving the nation as they lie, you know, under these tombstones and these American cemeteries that are a reminder to Europe and other parts of the world that American blood was shed, right? Shed on behalf of your nation. So, you know, the war dead do this symbolic work. Um, as I was trying to trace that arc, right, to trace that process by which, not just repatriation, but also the emphasis on individuated identification was emerging. Vietnam, as a as a conflict, um, as a site, um, as a set of politics, it it was it sort of cohered around this cultural demand of repatriation, but also accountability that was tied to individuals. So individual remains, individual fates that had to be. Establish, you know what happened and where are they um, at the same time in the 1980s early 90s you have the emergence of um, forensic scientific tools that are more exacting right so dna eventually becomes i don't know, to call the hero of the story but certainly the lead within the story um, and that's what i wanted to you know to to invite my reader to think about is it wasn't just a set of practices and it wasn't just a historical tradition, but there was an ideology that was emerging, right? This is what I call this ethos of exceptional care, the fullest possible accounting. We will spare no you know, expense or resource. We will go to the, you know, the, the ends of the world, right. To the, you know, we'll, we'll dig down into glaciers. We'll, you know, we'll excavate um, these, these extraordinary mountain slopes in Vietnam, and we will bring back any tiny fragment because this is what America does, right? Like, can you hear in that language? It is a kind of refashioning of exceptionalism, which um, say historian Kristin Appy, whose work has been so instrumental in helping me understand the context that, you know, the the forensic care emerges from. And he would say, this is this, you know, this is the conflict that utterly dismantles that myth of American exceptionalism. Well, forensic science is a way to sort of, um, I don't know, to to soften the blow, or to turn our attention away from the sting of defeat, and sort of cultivate, rehabilitate, yeah, like, I, um, to reanimate the past in new terms. And those terms are a kind of exceptionalism about what America does to to care for, to, to follow through, fulfill its obligation to war debt. And so it, it's quite handy, right? It turns away, it, it does a little work of scrubbing the history of, you know, what otherwise is the stain on American military history. It allows war dead um, to do symbolic work in the present, and you know has a possibility of shifting towards the future. Now, this is what you know we will do for our future service members. Rest assured, right? So, there's a lot ideologically that I think goes to that claim of ethos of exceptional care.
1: Absolutely, and it makes me think of the exceptional amount of money that the United States government as you detail, has spent in attempting to recover remains. What was particularly striking to me, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit later on, was the contrast in the number of war missing and war dead on the Vietnamese side, so to speak, and on the American side, and the, and the contrast in the resources, the financial resources, spent to recover those dead
2: um absolutely absolutely I mean I think there's this it is a story of asymmetries um so the US military um currently has uh, approximately 1582 83 um still unaccounted for from the conflict in Southeast Asia the vietnamese so I'm just talking about the vietnamese have 300,000 right 300,000 an estimated three million people were killed. Um, on the US side, 58,220 were killed. So we're really we're talking about um, gross asymmetries in loss and destruction. And yet um, in pursuing this ethos of exceptional care, an extraordinary forensic enterprise has emerged and has been um, supported um, financially, politically by various different US administrations and also the US Congress that said when i had gotten into the field to do research with the forensic laboratory out at Hickam um, Pearl Harbor this was this joint base that's where the forensics the central identification laboratory as it was then known was located it was also a time of somewhat reckoning i would say where the US Congress had recently gotten onto its radar screen that this was a, an enterprise, right, a mission that was well-funded, but there was frustrations around its results. And some of that has to do with our popular imaginary of what DNA, what forensic genetics can do. And so they essentially said to the laboratory, uh, to this enterprise, you need to up your accounting. They never called it a quota, but they called it a goal. The goal. Um, accounting for goal, and they were going from about 72, 73 identifications per year, and Congress said at that time, it was 2010, um, by 2015, you needed to get that up to 200. And so um, this just, this was a bit of a bombshell, Uh, as with any organization that I've ever studied related to identifying the missing, um, there are always internal politics and it led to some deep schisms, not just that preexisted, but really came to the fore. Eventually, the whole agency was um, reorganized and given a new name, which the military seems to do periodically. They, you know, they take an agency, they restructure it, they give it a new name, and onward. So, at any rate, I just wanted to point out that it was a it was a fascinating moment to be doing research in the laboratory because it was as if you know the sand was shifting underneath my feet. And trying to understand, you know, what were the political stakes? Who were the actors? To follow that, even as it was so fluid, it was a, it was a challenge, but it was also you know, incredibly intriguing and revealing. I would say.
1: Yeah, I'd like to actually dig in a little bit um, to in your time to your time in Hawaii and what that time produced for you. Um, During your stay, you actually went to Hawaii and stayed at the Central Identification Laboratory, CIL, as you just mentioned, um, for some time. And you write that you came to learn of the forensic work of MIA counting as being publicly called into question. And so I'm wondering, how how does the relationship between scientific integrity and the mission of the laboratory in Hawaii change? Uh, And... How do you come to reframe science as ritual in your thinking? And perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about the anthropology of science and technology studies as well.
2: Sure. So maybe I'll set the scene by explaining a little bit about you know how I began doing that research. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning that I was I was sort of pulling at this thread and following expertise. I set my sights and understanding the. Um, identification of the Vietnam War unknown. And in the process of that, I met several of sort of key actors, um, people who, you know, really who who were working with the U.S. military accounting mission at the time, um, but also who were in positions to help me understand how much it had changed from the 1980s into, you know, the mid-2000s. So, Late 2000s, uh, late. So, like, I guess that I, I was talking to people in about 2008, 9, 10. By 2011, I was able to go out to the Central Identification Laboratory at the invitation of Thomas Holland. Now, Holland was the director of, he had been the director for 20 some years. And he you know, was trained as an anthropologist in a, in a truly four-field sense, and so he was very open to an ethnographic analysis of the work that his staff, you know, that was happening at the laboratory. And so I thought, well, this is this is you know Bruno Latour science in action. This is you know Hugh Gusterson's the um, the nuclear rights. I, I would have an opportunity to work in a laboratory. And so when I got there, um, uh, Dr. Holland, you know, sort of said welcome, here's the staff, you know, shadow them, you know, pull cases off the, you know, the shelves and sit in the library, whatever you want to do as a sociocultural anthropologist. So I had that um, incredible access in 2011. I think in some ways I sort of, I proved that I was a serious scholar and that I was, I was doing this research in a, you know, in a, in a a sort of a systematic concerted way that he at the end of those two and a half months he said well look if you really want to understand this try and get yourself some funding and come back the following year um and we will do our best to get you assigned to a mission to so a recovery mission so that's what i did in in 2012 i came back and again you know did ethnographic research in the library did some of the work there's a, a national cemetery that's there as well Um, and then eventually was able to go to Vietnam. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I just wanted to say that that kind of um, access, I think, had I tried to do the research a decade later, I never would have gotten. Not only because there are different people who head up different realms of the the mission, but it's also an era where um, there was so much media scrutiny in the wake of the, the U.S. Congress saying, Get better, get faster. You know, be more efficient. Get these IDs up to two hundred, and all of the infighting that 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 emerged in the wake of that. That I I, I just think access um, would have been nearly impossible. So, um, you asked the question about uh, sort of scientific versus military um, approaches to accounting, and I want to say accounting as opposed to identification. So. Um, I mean there was invariably in that laboratory there were tensions between the scientific mission which was just you know they these were these were civilian scientists who were top of the field who were you know incredibly talented they knew what was you know a sound scientific approach they knew about quality assurance they knew that peer review process internally all of these were the standards of making sure that they were getting the science right And they had their their resumes and their PhDs to affirm that they had that expertise, right? they had that knowledge. On the military side, I think it was very illegible, the processes of knowledge production in the laboratory. And so instead, it was often a kind of contestation between operational finesse or operational experience versus scientific experience. And these two resumes, as it were, um, from the military side, you know the bars, the um, the the insignia, the sort of medals that would say, "This is my experience. I am accomplished. I know what I'm doing." Versus the scientific, the civilian scientist saying, "Well, yeah, I actually understand the scientific process that dictates a different choice." So these two sides could clash often. They would clash in the field for an ex, like an excavation site, but they would clash over, you know. The the decisions, you know, allocating funds or deciding, you know, which site to pursue um, or how to explain things to the public. It was just a a real a, a clash of authority and expertise, and that was um, I mean I would say it was fascinating, uh, but I was you could also see sort of the, the frustrations that bubbled up. Um, on a routine basis. So, yeah. So, last question you asked was, you know, how did I, why, or maybe how or why did I conceive of science as ritual? Um, And I think that goes all the way back to my work in Bosnia and really remember what I was saying that I was not a, I'm not a a true SDS scholar. I'm somebody who uh, is appreciates and, you know, really wants to get into analyzing the social effects of technology. And, and uh, there's something about the process by which um, scientific knowledge production sets off both knowledge and objects as a part, right? As something special, as different. Here's our Durkheimian, like the sacred pro- from the profane. What are the means by which um, a, a tooth becomes this inert object that is embedded in the soil that is, that is finally emerges Um, that, you know, cycles through a process of archaeological excavation, forensic um, genetic analysis, uh, odontological analysis, moving through these regimes of value to eventually emerge as a human being, not just any human being, but a war dead, right? A vaunted, symbolically laden war dead. To me, there was all kinds of ritual built into that that mobility that movement across these regimes of value and you know and i saw it not just in the sort of symbols and language but like in the physical gestures and this kind of ceremonies that um, served as rites of passage from one state to another so you know, I know there's always some a little bit of a pushback when we talk about science as you know in a constructivist sense or in a you know as a, as a social process, as if somehow that detracts from its objectivity. My point rather was to see it as processual in that process. It was it was to me, it was full of ritual. It's something that, you know, I'm not alone in this analysis. As I say Hugh Gusterson, who was a colleague of mine at GW, is now at UBC, he's written about this very powerfully, like, you know, the, the forms of how do we see um, secrecy when in, in a laboratory as a means of safeguarding the sacred from the profane, right? Or access, you know, can I, can I tap in from one room to the other? No, why? Because, you know, one chamber is set apart, from as something different, something special, something that has to be safeguarded. So at any rate, it's it's not you know original to me this idea of science seeing science in a ritualistic sense. Um, but it's it it was it just was so I felt it was so apparent and so worthy of that sort of theoretical exploration. And I and I felt it was really productive to see it in those terms. And my you know my forensic scientific interlocutors they didn't. They, you know, some of them would say, well, okay, that's a little too far, but others would say, I see what you mean. Yeah, there is something, you know, there's qualitatively um, different about the object in one state than the other.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Absolutely. And well, in the book you narrate many of these ritualistic moments that I think you, and I think you really convey the way in which what we otherwise would not conceive as ritual we might not call ritual or the lay person might not call ritual is absolutely uh ritual in a sense i i, I want to leave our let our listeners discover the book for themselves but i th- i'm thinking here of the moment uh ancestors of some of the war dead see the remains of their grandfathers or parents, fathers, on a blanket in front of them. And though they didn't know them personally, perhaps they weep in, struck, they're, they're just overwhelmed by emotion. Um, and it's a moment that I think you you narrate in such a way that really allows us to see how someone with a, theoretically, just a symbolic connection to this person actually comes to interiorize or not the, this, um, this connection, this, uh, this emotional connection, um, as just an aside. I'd like to pick up on Hawaii uh, as a field site. I'd like to uh, and ask you about your field sites in general. You talked about how you got access to the field site of the laboratory in Hawaii through the director there. But you also have the jungle in Vietnam as a field site, a bar in Wisconsin, uh, a cemetery in Arlington, and a monument in Washington DC, of course. Uh, You have many field sites that you talk about in the book. And I'm gonna ask the following question as a student, but also as a young researcher and someone thinking about methodological questions. I'm wondering, how did you decide on which field sites to prioritize and to visit how you and how you negotiated access to them? We heard a little bit about Hawaii, but how did that work in Vietnam? You went to Vietnam. And what was the difference between you and the politician who came with you? Or not came with you, who visited after you in Vietnam?
2: Yeah. So one thing I would say is the project, it really unfolded organically. I, I, Again, I told you that I started with um, Arlington National Cemetery and the Tomb of the Unknown, and just sort of this extraordinary rupture of a national icon. Um, so there was, I had, I guess I would say I had multiple field sites that were sort of suspended um, at any given time, and then you know, I would activate, You know, I, one would become uh, where I'd be working in that moment. So as a through line, I would say that Arlington and the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, they were continual touchstones, like I would come back to them. And that was actually fascinating. I mean, the first time I was really doing ethnographic research at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, I knew nothing about you know, that space. Um, I, so I was encountering it as, you know, let will say any other tourist. By the time the project was closing, I knew names on the wall, right? I knew histories, I knew families of individuals who were, whose names are inscribed there. I, I was able to um, be present as. You know, at least one family member sort of went through her ritual at the wall. So I guess that those field sites were there. And then at different moments, they, they became more central to what I was trying to analyze. Again, I was going, I was moving from um, or across the accounting mission from recovery to identification to commemoration. Uh, I got into I, I got into the lab and studied that process of identification and then Tom Holland says, come back the next year and back it up and look at recovery. That allowed me to go to Vietnam. I would never have been able to do, again, I really want to say like, that's, I just feel unless I were a member of a press corps, I highly doubt a researcher would be doing that in this day and age. It's, it's different circumstances it meant that I was embedded with the U.S. military. And despite the fact that this was not an active military operation, um, the accounting, uh, uh, these excavations as extensions of the accounting mission are cast as humanitarian, right? That's literally how, and I want to say that, that, uh, that um, figuration, the way the U.S. names it as humanitarian, so too does the, the Vietnamese government. So they've come to this, this understanding and it's, it's totally performative and political, but they—they they both sides call it, you know, this joint collaborative humanitarian initiative. Well, it's nevertheless, in my case, my team's case, you know, thirteen individuals, twelve of whom are members of the military, two are civilians who are dropped into this site in the, you know, the middle of a jungle in central Vietnam, and they're doing this excavation, right? An excavation, like think back to the asymmetries we were talking about for five men of the, you know, 100, what, so 1,580 some. So we're looking for five. Meanwhile, as Hyo Quan writes about the ghosts of the war, there are 300,000 missing Vietnamese, right? So it couldn't get more glaring. Nevertheless, the entire project You know, the ability to excavate a site and to unearth and take home, repatriate remains depends on A, you know, the Vietnamese state's willingness to host the former enemy, to allow them a military presence for this really limited amount of time, but B, Vietnamese society and, you know, C, local Vietnamese workers who do some of the hardest labor within the entire mission right, clearing land. Um, In our case, we were working on this very, very steep slope. And so cutting stairs into the side of that mountain slope, um, hauling up, there's the buckets would move of, of soil and debris would move up a chain, a human chain of laborers up to the top. The Americans were the ones who would work at the screening station and who would work in the unit being excavated, right? Vietnamese were not allowed in either of those places, and yet all of the labor in between depended on them right so i you know I can't say that's you know how every single excavation is run, but that's sort of in principle those are the dynamics um so I was you know I, as I look back this on that field work um I was very much a part of an American team. And that meant my insights into the Vietnamese were only through my translator. There were two translators who were part of the the military unit Um, and uh, what they were able to explain, what I was able to sort of glean from sort of gestures and body language, but it was really so limited. It was like, I I was looking at the American search for Americans. And at the same time, you know, at the um, at the agreement or the sort of hospitality of the Vietnamese state, and you know, because of the collaborative labor of you know, Vietnamese villagers who made it possible. So it was a really it was a sort of strange way of doing ethnographic research, as you can imagine, because so often, as certainly you know, as I was a graduate student. Being taught that it's, you know, it's about your ability to really, you know, be subsumed in a, 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 a culture or a place or a group of people. And it was like doing that in a highly restricted way.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: and yet it was, you know, I, I learned an enormous amount about the military process, its ethos, um, the individual team members on my excavation. So it was revealing. Um i write about that, uh, that elected official the American politician who dropped in, literally like deus ex machina dropped in. And um, I think it was also a moment to expose that the U.S. military is not a monolithic thing. Um, people within my team had very, you know, had, had strong and different reactions to that moment. They were keenly aware that they, this mission, the site, the Vietnamese were being used as a kind of prop. Um, so I think it was also useful, that moment, both to expose sort of the politics of, the performative politics of MIA accounting, but also to show that, um, you know, the, the military, and I think our, our friend Annie Bigford does this extremely well as, as well, to, to look at the military, not as a monolith, but to understand, you know, people have very different engagements, both professionally, personally, and ideologically to the work that they are doing.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Um- I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to what you are calling the performative politics of the military. And here I'm wondering how that, what's the relationship between those that that show, that display uh, or that enactment of reality uh, and what actually happened between the recovery team, the American recovery team and, and locals, um, local Vietnamese workers, you your depiction, this chapter is is really stunning. Um, it's I, I I found it extremely in, intriguing. Um, you, you write about when the recovery team actually departs, there are gifts given and received between the recovery team and the some of the local workers. And you argue that the And I'm going to quote you here, the bonds of reciprocity that arose among the members of the two groups were temporary and asymmetrical. So I'm curious, how does that performance of politics on how does that interact with this this gift giving moment and sort of the the affective connections that might have been present
2: Yeah, no, I understand that question. And I think it's something I grappled with throughout the research and also writing this up and sort of reflecting um, on these different moments of encounter. So encounter is invariably I see this entire process as the ways in which the living and the dead are entwined in a sense of national belonging. Right. And yet I over and over, I, I wanted to kind of correct myself and say it's never solely defined by the nation. I mean, of course it is. And yet we have to be more nuanced. So, you know, this that excavation it had all of these moments of deeply entrenched nationalistic policies and practices. So for example, the whole enterprise of excavating rested on initial negotiations with the Vietnamese government and the U S government around what site, how much land was going to be cleared and what would be the price of compensation, right? So they called it land comp. So these negotiations that are the, the, the prices are—I um, don't think to say astronomical. I mean, why shouldn't the Vietnamese government, from the you know the highest realms to the most local provincialized um, official, extract funds from the U.S. Given that we refused to pay for reconstruction as we were obligated in the Paris Peace Accords, right? So, like, let's just set that out, right? There is a dynamic in which there is land compensation that is playing out you know, attempts to uh, force the US government to pay for the, the extraordinary destruction that we visited upon Southeast Asia, right? So that's one. And it comes down to negotiating how much are you going to pay for, you know, how many trees are felled, how much land is, is dug up, so on and so forth, okay? So there's that. And then you have a month of people laboring side by side, and through these really like halting, almost silly gaps of language and understanding, a gradual bond because we you work together and you work hard. It was a physically, I mean, I'm up somebody who's I'm active, I you know, I, I run, I play soccer, I'm like a physically active person. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Partly because you know, the the conditions, incredibly humid, incredibly hot, but you're in. You know, this trench digging, digging, digging for 45 to 60 minutes um, and you're absolutely spent. You might do that twice in one day. The Vietnamese who are laboring alongside you, um, some of them have you know, little chance to talk with you, but especially down at the excavation site and up at the screening station, you talk, you social, I mean, talk, right? you know, like it's it's sort of rudimentary, but you joke, you at lunchtime, those, and not everybody from the military team wanted to do this, but there was a core group of people who really felt, I wanna get to know these others who are, you know, we're in their 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 backyard, we're in their land. Like, I wanna understand them. What are they eating? What are we eating? What's their family like? So there would be these lunchtime exchanges and that's where we would like exchange food as well. Um, And it's really out of that. It's out of that um, sort of these ephemeral exchanges of, of language and food. And then the camaraderie of really hard physical labor that that gave rise to certain connections, not across border I wanna paint it like you know, all 50, 60 laborers thought, well, this, this is a great team, I'd love to have them back, not at all. But I do mean and there were certain relationships that developed and that I wanted to try and articulate ethnographically because it helped me provide nuance to what is otherwise a predominantly nationalist and nationalist explanation of the accounting mission which it is, right? It is not a humanitarian, it's a political endeavor. Um, but I wanted to show that, I mean, this is what good ethnography does is I think is what is a lived experience and the lived experience invariably shows us that there's more to it than just one analytical category such as the nation.
1: Well, that was a uh, very clear answer to a very unclear question. So thank you, that was, that was yeah, absolutely. And I found that really that, that chapter is uh, was just incredible. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the organization of the book the and its style. You have four interludes, I believe, and your interludes taken together have the feeling of a prolonged meditation on the idea of homecoming among other ideas. As I read along, I found myself rethinking the opening vignette as a as the content of the chapters Contextualized bit by bit, the ceremony you narrate in that opening interlude, um, the opening vignette is enriched and complicated by each successive interlude. I found, basically, can you elaborate on this stylistic choice and the style of the writing?
2: Yeah, um, well, both the opening and the interludes, I I wanted my reader to spend time in the place that is Bayfield and Redcliffe. So this is on the the shores of Lake Superior. I wanted to ground this repatriation and individuated identification ethos of exceptional care. I wanted to ground it in a place, in a family, in a community, in a set of veterans, because that's ultimately what the recovery mission, right, an accounting mission does is it, it brings someone home? Well, what does that mean to bring home, um, to come home? To whom are they returning? How did those individuals understand the loss, both at the time and now in the present? Um, how is identification, you know, it's, it is an individuated process, but the helicopter crash that we excavated was of five individuals. And those individuals were sort of bound up with one another. Um, they they are also, you know, a story of homecoming that the U.S. military is insistent on telling in a particular way. But if you scratch below the surface a little, you see um, that, and this I'm, I'm alluding to one of the, right, the, the final interlude, where you see that it's, um, they are, you know, they are these sacred vessels that are brought back, but they're also these sacred vessels that do work for the state. So I'm so, I'm really trying to tack between you know the the obligations that are set on to um, that are expected of the missing upon their recovery and return. Um, the other thing is, you know I, I wonder if this would have happened if I had followed a different case, right? If I'd been on a different excavation, a different site that yielded a different identification. But I felt so extraordinarily fortunate that the the one tooth that I followed on its arc back home um, belonged to Merlin Ray Allen, belonged to the five surviving Allen siblings, belonged to a VFW post um, on the... The Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, essentially their their territory. Um, that post was named after another missing in action, who will likely never be recovered. So the story, it was it it was so replete, and it had it showed me so much about the tension surrounding the war at the time, um, about the legacies of war, including that you know there were members of that. Um, VFW Post, who suffered from Agent Orange and PTSD. So it just, you know, the, the, that neat narrative of homecoming, I wouldn't say it unraveled, but it was like, oh, there's so much more there to it. And at the same time, um, someone like Mary Defoe, who had been a, a good friend of Merlin Ray Allen and writes and thinks critically about the war could also put down on paper and talk with me about her memories of a human being who had a biography that existed and was full of love and joy and prankster jokes and so on before he became a Marine, right? So understanding that, that sort of flattening process of a homecoming of a missing in action now found and returned is um, it, it just, it, it veils or conceals so much about an individual and a community. So I think that was also the effort of the interludes is to lay that bare and invite my reader into those, into that place, into those people's lives and their memories, their rituals, and also sort of remind you towards the end, there is, it's okay to be a little cynical about this process too.
1: Absolutely. And I had the, when I read it, I had the experience of discovering the diversity of experiences of these families of the missing dead with each interlude, it's it's sort of there's a there's a a thread that links them all, but there's a you also highlight the diversity of experiences that the families, the brothers, the sisters, the, the sons and daughters of the missing war dead. Uh, it, it all comes to the surface, um, and it really cuts the chapters up and and breaks otherwise. Uh, a, a traditional book into a into a really interesting read. Um, it also makes me think that perhaps it's how you experienced some of this research project. As as you said, you start with, uh, for example, the cemetery or the monument in Washington DC, and you come back to it, uh, or your your comprehension of that space is interrupted, is then changed as you later learn more about your subjects, about your objects.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. That's exactly right. Um, and you never really plan. I mean, I think a project like this, it, it did take me 10 years, so 10 years of research and writing. And I, the writing only happened in the very end. Um, yeah, so I think you revisit. I think different spaces take on different meaning because you've gained insight from other ethnographic encounters. I think the other thing i really wanted to do well with this book and maybe it's the luxury of a book you can write later in your career is i really wanted to embrace what i i what i thought of as as good writing um you know there's there this book is is not heavily theorized it's a and in fact you know when i when my editor and I sort of settled on the genre, it was clear that this was going to be a trade academic piece, meaning like trying to hit that sweet spot between writing to an academic audience, really relying on footnotes to, to do the signaling, the signposting of like, there is a deeper and I'm engaging with, and I'm standing on the shoulders of, you know, this fantastic, uh, Historical, anthropological, STS theory, like it's there, but it's not woven into the text in the same way that a more academic piece would be. On the trade side of it, right, writing to a non expert audience, I genuinely wanted like the Allen siblings or um, Dwayne Spindler, you know, the, the, the man who talks about losing his father and then his mother to suicide, right? Like I wanted them to be able to read this book and feel their experiences reflected in it, that they could recognize it without it being kind sort of overlaid with um, too much anthropological like lingo, right? Like that's, that was my aim with this book. And again, I think there's a moment in one's career where you can kind of lean into, um, the writing style that you know, you're you cultivating or you really admire. And so this was an opportunity and I have to say I'm a little bit hooked. Like I, I just so enjoyed writing this book. I just, I really, you know, it was a complicated, the research was, it was, it was a challenging uh, book to produce in many ways, but the writing of it was just such a pleasure, so.
1: Well, I think you've absolutely succeeded in that, uh, objective. Um, it's a, it's a, it, it is beautiful writing and I think, yeah, it, it really comes across that you focused on, uh, a certain style, um, to allow it to be accessible to uh, certain audiences. Anyway, it's actually just a pleasure to read, in fact. <laughs> um, so to wrap up we've covered only a small handful of the themes you tackle and the scenes of ethnographic research and personal connection that you narrate in the book Uh, there really is so much rich detail in the narration of your experience witnessing the government's accounting process and that of prisoner of war missing in action families Um, i wanted to ask are there any elements of the book that you would like to highlight in particular
2: yeah what would I say? Um, yeah, maybe you know, I mentioned um, Dwayne Spindler. Um, I think there are uh, elements of the book that tackle a theme which runs through my research, and that is you know sort of living with uncertainty or ambiguity and um you know this is a it's not again not an original concept to me, but it was something that tied the first book and the second is you know how enduringly painful um, imaginings you know uncertainties of what happened and then not having concrete answers how 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 that can be for families, how that's lived for decades on end um, and I think that probably comes out um, in its clearest form in the, that interview with, with Dwayne. And, um, and it was an interesting choice. Like originally I was just going to let it, you know, let it all be Dwayne's voice. And then, you know, the editor sort of said, okay, well we need a little bit of you and can you break it up? But I thought, no, in fact, we should just hear from him. And so I think that, um, maybe that's the, the last point to underscore is there is a, a sort of an emotional side to this, um, to living with prolonged grief and with uncertainty. Uh, that is, Im- I wanted to make sure was there and in the words of those who experience it. So I think that would be my last point to emphasize.
1: Sure. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think I've taken up enough of your time today. Before you go, can you tell us uh, a little bit about what you might be working on now?
2: Yes. So um, we are in November of 2022. And that means for the last two and a half years, I've been working with two colleagues of mine in the anthropology department at George Washington University, as well as um, a slate of different undergraduate master's and PhD students um, on a project we've called Rituals in the Making. And that is a project attuned to the question of how do we mourn when we cannot gather? It's what we came up with in May of 2020, um, as we sought to sort of pool our expertise and address the ways in which the pandemic, its restrictions were changing burial, funeral and commemorative practices. Um, that project, it started out, you know, really attentive again to ritual, and it wouldn't be a surprise given our conversation today, um, and mourning and memory. But um, the other element that it started to take on was misinformation and thinking about contested narratives of of loss um, and the meaning of that loss. And so we've we um, it's the study is funded by the National Science Foundation. Um, the first year we re- reapply for a, a more extended grant. So we, it will be a five year project. Um, and it's just been really it's been extraordinary. Um, I've never done this kind of ethnographic work as a part of a team, right? Like all of my my work up until this point is me as an individual, mm-hmm. you know, going to Hawaii, going to Bosnia-Herzegovina, doing this research on my own and writing it up. And here um, we, we do simultaneously, you know, in-person virtual ethnographic research. We take field notes together. I mean, it's just a totally methodologically different way of doing things. Um, and also in so many ways feel it's a culmination of the two previous projects. I mean, they really inform just what I was saying about uncertainty and prolonged grief. I mean, we will see that with COVID-19 deaths because as a nation we fail to recognize it. We literally refuse to recognize it on a national level. Um, we will see the vestiges of that for decades to come. And so in some ways, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I and this team were conducting an ethnographic study of a, a kind of silencing um, or a, a form of social forgetting that activists are are trying to refute. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. it's been a, another challenging project, but a really important one and methodologically just like so exciting, because I'm not alone, I'm not the lone wolf, I'm with a group of people who think about things in different ways, ask different questions, and it's been immensely fruitful for all of us.
1: Well, that's very exciting to hear about. I am definitely looking forward to seeing some of that upcoming work. Anyway, as a final note, uh, I want to strongly encourage our listeners to get a hand their hands on a copy of What Remains, whatever they might be able to. It is a stunningly well-written and well-researched book. I think there is something in it for everyone, truly. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today, Sarah. And thank you very much for joining me.
2: John, thank you so much for the opportunity for this conversation and and just to shed a little light on, on the research and the writing that went behind the book. So thank you for that
1: opportunity.